Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we continue our series over the Gospel of John. Enjoy. Increased resistance to his ministry. And it's coming on the heels of the fact that he's doing more and more describing for people who he is and who he isn't, and what he came to do and what he didn't come to do. And part of what's confusing people so much is that they had their own preconceived ideas of what a Messiah was going to be, what the, what the Messiah was going to come to do. And some of that preconceived idea came out of their reading of some of the verses in the Old Testament, which talked a lot about deliverance. It talked a lot about freedom. It talked a lot about uh, land of milk and honey, you know, kind of the imagery that was used for the people of Israel when they were in, enslaved in Egypt. And then the prophets were painting this wonderful picture of what it would be like for them when they, re- when they reached the promised land. So you can kind of get, you can, we can have a little sympathy for them in the sense that there would have been this confusion. And so when Jesus comes along and he starts to do these great signs, that sort of lends itself to the, the idea in people's minds that, that perhaps he is the Messiah. Perhaps this is the ushering in of the Messianic age, which in their minds would mean that the Roman government would be overthrown, that in their minds um, Israel would be brought back to its uh, Old Testament glory, uh, what it had experienced under King David and also under King uh, King Solomon. So Jesus is, is encountering this, and that's what we're seeing in this part of John, where we pick it up in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him, and some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So that's another theme that shows up in this part of John, where the people that were upset about the fact that Jesus was starting to influence the people around him, they were starting to draw to him and draw away from the scribes and the Pharisees. They were losing some of their power base they began to think in terms of, we got, we got to put this guy away. We got to put him in his place. We have to arrest him. But one of the themes that we keep on seeing in this part of John is that even though that was their thought, no one did anything to arrest him. And John makes the point again and again that whenever it was that Jesus was going to be arrested, that was God's call. That was God's plan. God God the Father had already set out the map, so to speak, of of Jesus' life. And in terms of when Jesus would finally be arrested, when he would be crucified, etc. But that wasn't going to happen on the agenda or the timing of of the people who were his enemies. That was going to happen according to when when God wanted it to be. But notice this, uh, this little slight insult there in verse 41. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? This is, we're going to see this again in subsequent uh, verses. Apparently, Galilee was seen as the last place in the world that anybody good would come out of. So, you know, think think of what would be in your mind 
the name of a town that you're familiar with. Or maybe it was a town that when you were growing up as a teenager, that was your biggest rival in high school or something like that. And where you would say to yourself, there's no way anything good could ever come out of that place. Okay. What was, what was it? Plano. Plano? Well, Plano was. Oh, okay. So that was an example of that for you. So you would say to yourself, nothing good could ever come out of Plano. Yeah. And maybe Plano says nothing good could ever come out of Rockwall too. Maybe that's how they say that. And then they tripled our size. You know? Yes, I know. I know. It's like, look how things have taken off. Yeah. All right. So anyway, that's where you get that sense of that, that that they had this sort of elitist attitude toward, uh, toward who they were and where they were from and all those kinds of things. And so this idea of nothing good could come out of uh, Galilee. Okay, well, let's pick it up then in verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Are you from Plano too? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Plano, okay? All right, I mean, do you see what's happening here? Is that they, they really have this, this attitude toward, uh, well, toward two, two people, uh, two groups of people. The, the Galileans, and part of it is, is that as a, as, a, as a culture or a region, if you will, Galileans were probably the most coarse C-O-A-R-S-E, coarse people that would have been part of this whole, this, this whole zoo, if you will, in terms of uh, the, the kinds of people. Galileans were known to, to, to look for a way to start a fight. And so it's suggested that, yeah, right, Tom? Yeah, let's hear it for that, yeah. Uh, where do you live? Rockwall? Is that where you live? No, I don't know. Oh, yeah, Rowlett. Yeah, that's, well, there we go. That explains it. Uh, <laughs> So, so part of it, you know, one of the, one of the, the, the uh, theories is, is that of all the disciples, Simon Peter was a Galilean. And we're sort of given that clue. Remember when Jesus gets arrested and, and uh, Peter goes and he sneaks into the courtyard of the high priest and then they start to kind of say, hey, weren't you with uh, the Jesus and aren't you a Galilean? We can tell by your accent and how you dress. And so anyway, that he goes, no, no, it wasn't me. But but you could see where um, they would sort of get this idea that the guy that you don't want to mix anything up with is a Galilean. All right, so, so you could see where there was already a little bias there, already a little prejudice. So they were prejudiced toward uh, Galileans, but what we also see is that they begin to become prejudiced toward uh, people that they think don't observe the law the way they do. All right, notice that uh, verse, uh, verse there, verse 49. That, but this crowd, and the, in the Greek, the, the word crowd there is nicely translated. The original says this rabble. 
this rabble that does not know the law, okay? So see, you can see where there's this elitist sort of uh, uh, kind of academia that kicks in and they are ready to arrest him. Now, they had already sent soldiers to arrest Jesus, but the, uh, the soldiers realized that Jesus was starting to gain popularity with the crowds and the people were starting to uh, become endeared toward him. And so they weren't about to stand up to the crowd. So they come back to the chief priests and that's where you get this part where they said, you know, where is he? Why, di- why, didn't, you, uh, why didn't you bring him? Now, what does Nicodemus say? He says, isn't, isn't it part of our law to judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does. So let's take a look at some verses down at the bottom of page 79 there. First verse is from Exodus 23. says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. All right? And then in Deuteronomy 1, he says, And I charge your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously, between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. So, you know, they were, they were mindful of how easy it would be for someone who had something against somebody else to just rack up some false charges, right? So that kind of followed the law of the idea that it would take more than one witness to affirm the story of what someone did in order to, uh, to determine guilt or uh, innocence. All right, so now we get chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to, Mount, to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And then Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What's your takeaway from that? The question always comes up, Where's the guy? <laughs> Where'd they drug her? Where'd, uh, she didn't commit adultery by herself. Kind of hard to do that, yes. Kind of hard to do that, yeah. Is the law biased towards the women in that type of situation? Now, I don't know what you mean by that question. Was the law, I don't know what you mean. The law, was the law biased towards, what do you mean? It says the law says if she's caught in adultery, she should be stoned. Does it not mention the guy, the actual law? Ah, So let's go down to the actual law. I printed those for you at the bottom of page 80, okay? Because I knew that someone in the group... Well, and it makes perfect sense, you know, because because it's clear that they have an agenda, okay? 
I mean, that's clear by the fact that John points out they're saying, they're asking this not because they actually care about the woman. They could, in fact, care less about the woman. And so that's one of the takeaways from this, is that sometimes we can become so uh, adamant about the thing that we're focused on, you know, the, the righteous cause we have, so to speak, that we stop looking at people and see their plight and see their situation. And now what we do instead is we say, well, this is the perfect opportunity for me to go after this person or to make my point. Okay, so that's, that is a takeaway. Well, let's look at Leviticus uh, 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Well, that pretty well clears that up, doesn't it? All right. Uh, Deuteronomy 22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your, from your midst. And then also the Mishnah, which was a collection of rabbinical teachings that, that came along with uh, over the ages after the, God's original law was written, said that death by stoning was the punishment for a girl who was betrothed and then commits adultery. So I think that we could probably clearly say that when it came to adultery, it takes two people to be involved in adultery, and so it's a legitimate question, why didn't they pull the guy out? So that's, that's an excellent point. Okay, what else? What else um, jumps off the page from, from this story for you? Well, perhaps because in what it says here in these scriptures, that is a basis. And then looking at Jesus, what he says at the end, where are your accusers? You know, a lot of people think that what Jesus wrote in the dirt were the names of the people that had had relations with her. Ooh. <laughs> wow. When they did it, so they look at this stuff that's written in the sand, and the implication is that they left because he wrote their names in the sand, and they didn't want anybody else to know. I, I had not ever heard that before. Did you hear what he said? That, that the, one of the theories is, is that when Jesus bent down and he's writing something in the sand, that he's writing the names of the people that had uh, been involved with, uh, with this woman. And, you know, you can kind of imagine people are kind of looking over to kind of see what's there, and then all of a sudden I got I to gotta get away. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's always a possibility because nobody really knows okay, what he wrote. Now, it is interesting that the Greek word for wrote, let's see, where did I, I think I put that in the note on the next page. Yeah, if you look at point E, he wrote with his finger on the ground. The Greek word is katagraphine, which means to write a record against someone. So it could be something like that, or it could be simply that he was writing down the sins of people that would include certainly, okay, it could inc include sexual sin, but it also could include being judgmental, and it could be included uh, some other things, all right? 
So again, it, it's, that's very possible. We're not told what he wrote, but we are certainly told the effect of, uh, of what he wrote. I suspect he started with the oldest guy's name, too. <laughs> now, I was wondering who was going to pick up on this, okay? Because you notice that it says one by one they left, and it began with the older ones, and then, of course, then you have the younger ones left. So what is the significance you know, maybe someone here who is older could tell us what is the significance of that? What, what, what is the meaning of that? That Oh, Fred, you're, are you older? Are you going to explain it to us? Yes. I'm getting older. Okay, good. <laughs> I think as you get older, you realize, first of all, that, that what you wore through sin is. But also, you've had more time to sin. So it really didn't matter what you wrote down. <laughs> it would have fit anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or perhaps but, it didn't go, this indicates that it's been going on for some time. Well, that's the other thing, is that how in the world did they catch her? She would have somehow been known to be someone probably who, who was engaged in sexual relations with uh, either as a prostitute. I mean, perhaps, again, it was very common in Jesus' day that uh, sometimes people who were widows, for example, had no uh, other means of support, right? So, so often... They, if there was not another family member that could take them in, how else were they going to live? And so many of them turned to prostitution as the way to do that. Again, we don't know if, what is the case here. But again, the idea would be that she probably was well known and they were able to figure that out. And then they saw this as the perfect opportunity. Now, what it, 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 one of the things that John says is they did this to test him. So what's the test? They're trying to put Jesus into a no-win situation. Okay? Yeah, Philip? Oh, well, yeah. No, say more about it, Philip. So it was either Jesus would go against Rome or uh, whoever they are uh, subjects of, yeah. the, 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 the law of society at that time, and saying, well, yes, she, yes, she is condemned. Yes. Uh, she does need to be stoned. Or... He is to go against the teaching uh, and what's in the scripture, saying that no, she shouldn't be stoned. Yeah, and he's he's rewriting scripture in a way. That's right. So see, their their attempt is to use the situation to make him look bad in the eyes of the people. And either way he would go, the potential of that would be there. That if he says, "Don't stone her," because what he wants to do is have compassion for the person. If he leans toward compassion, then what happens is the truth takes a hit because the truth is, in fact, what's, what's laid out in the Word, right? But by the same token, if he says, well, the Bible says it, and therefore we got to do it, right? Then he begins to lose face in the eyes of the people who see him as this compassionate, uh, this compassionate Messiah. And so it really, it was quite devious, wasn't it? It was quite, uh, quite a good trap that they were attempting to uh, set for him. Yeah, Keith. We also know that in the Jesus trial, the uh, Hebrews could not put anyone to death, only the Romans could. That's correct. So they couldn't stone her without being, like Philip was saying, is yeah. the Roman. That's right. So that would have been the other part of it is if he had said, go ahead and follow the truth, follow what, what our confession says, then, and they had done that, then they could easily have turned it back on Jesus and said, well, he's a he's guilty of sedition that because uh, Rome was the only one that could uh, that could do that so it was like the perfect setting yeah well 
Debbie. probably found out who the guy was because he was bragging to his friends what he had done. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> That's an interesting brain that you have. I'm thinking it was a setup and he was part of it. Yeah, exactly, yes. Now we see where the brains in this place goes because all the laughter tells you that's where other brains went as well. Yes, yeah, Kim. You couldn't hear it? Don't worry, I don't think it was worth repeating. So. Do you want to say it again? You want to say it again? You might have to stand up to do it. I know you hate that. I said the, re the way they found the guy was because he was bragging to his buddies about what he had done. So. Yeah. Yeah, and again, it, these, these are smallish regions, so it's not like, I mean, come on, how many of you like grew up in a small town? Maybe like Plano when it was small, you know, something like that. I mean, isn't it kind of true that even if you don't know everything about everybody, you kind of know who's who and who are the ones, you know? Isn't that kind of what happens? Yeah, so that part of it probably would have been, would have been true as well. But the, the, the suggestion here is that she and a guy were together sexually and they went and grabbed only her because that's what they say. We caught her in the act of adultery. And then the question, of course, is, well, you know, where was the guy that she was with and why wasn't he dragged in front either? Okay, so we have this, we have this scenario. Now, I put, I put up on the board a diagram. It's not part of your outline. So, Philip, if, later if you take a picture of it and include it with the podcast stuff, because it, it's kind of my way of, of thinking about... In what way might this story speak to us today? Because I think in the Christian community, we also struggle with the collision of, in, of, of the, our confession, which is our adherence to the truth, right? We, we talk about that a lot. We say, you know, the Bible's the word of God. The Bible's the word of truth. The Bible says this, the Bible says that. And, and it's good that we do that. But there are moments and situations that I would just simply call sinful situations. And you could say that you could describe sinful situations with respect to yourself, to somebody you know, to society. You know, in fact, what, what, what you could do is you could go to verse uh, 3, where it says, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. If you take out the word woman and just fill in the blank, and then take out the word in adultery and fill in the blank, you can pick almost any sin that somebody gets caught in the act of doing or caught in the act of promoting. And the question always comes up is how do we respond to it? Do we, do we respond to the sin in the form of saying, thus says the word, thus says the Bible, the Bible says this is sin, the Bible says this is what you're supposed to do? That's what they were doing. They said, well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says stone him. And we read it, and there it was right there, right? And yet at the same time, we struggle with the fact that there's also a lot in the Scripture about the idea of being a compassionate person, that we are compassionate toward people at the same time that we confess the truth. And sometimes when it comes to dealing with public sin or with societal sin or something that is seen as 
acceptable in society for whatever reason, but the Bible clearly condemns it and says, wrong, wrong, wrong. What do we, how do we as Christians supposed to respond to that? And so there is this, this kind of dilemma. And then part of what sort of guides it or the frame that goes over the top of it is uh, Jesus's words regarding the commandments, the summary of the commandments, which was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and what? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So all of that is involved as it is involved here. Now again, what's interesting about Jesus' response is, is that he doesn't, he does not condone the woman's sinful behavior or her sinful actions. He doesn't say, well, that's okay. It's, he doesn't say, oh, that's understandable. He doesn't say, well, we, we understand your life situation because probably you were a widow and you had no other means of support, so we will, we will let you off the hook. He doesn't do that. But at the same time, what else doesn't he do? He doesn't condemn her. And we'll talk maybe a little bit about what that means. So it is, it's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting dilemma, is it not, in our Christian community in terms of how do we respond? And, and the, the response, I see the response, if I step back in Christendom, there are, there are some churches and there are some preachers who will only look at it from this point of view, and they will not look at it from this point of view. And there's other people that say, oh, we have to look at it from the, from the uh, position of confession, even if it means that we uh, speak against the truth. And there's other churches that change the truth, by the way. Are you aware of that? Yeah. Yeah, Mary Jo. I think I've got a good example of Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff, yeah. Are we familiar with Bernie Madoff? Okay. No? Uh, I guess he's got like 18 months to live. 18 months to live in prison, federal prison. Yeah. Right. I think his kidneys are... Um, inspiring or whatever, and he's asking to have an early release so he can spend the time with his family. Uh-huh. And I know for <laughs> had a discussion with friends, and a lot of them were saying, you know, just let him die in prison. Yeah. Know? And I'm of the feeling, where's your compassion? Right. You know, it's 18 months for heaven's sake. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I don't know that they've made a decision on that. Right. But that is a, an example, exactly, of what we're talking about. Right. So Bernie Madoff was this, uh, this finance guy in New York who put together, I guess, a Ponzi scheme. Isn't that what he ended up doing? And he built uh, his clients out of millions of dollars. It was, there were terrible losses. And then he got caught. And so then when he got caught, he got convicted and sent to federal prison. So that's who that is. Yeah. And I don't know if he was ever... Uh, remorseful. I don't. I don't. I didn't follow the story that much to know if he was remorseful. But again, you know, part. Hmm. It doesn't really matter. We're talking about compassion. Well, again, it's kind of one of those things. If if I lean this way, I would say probably not. Okay. But if I if I include this over here, I would say probably so. All right. It's a little bit like uh, if you think of it in terms of. Uh, make it more personal, uh, kind of like what I was talking about in the sermon today, is, is when there is something between you and someone else. It's so interesting that when, 
when I am the one who was the offended or the one who got hurt or the one who got ripped off, okay? I'm probably going to lean over this way to the truth here. You know, by golly, you have to, you know, repent. And what repent means is that you better get down on your knees and you better be sorry. And I'm not sure you are, so keep doing it. I mean, you know, that's what's going to happen, right? My bias of being the hurt one is probably going to take me over here. And it's going to be a lot harder for me to get over here, right? When I'm that one, right? But the flip side of it is, is that when I'm the one who did it, to somebody else. And then I'm asking for your leniency. Probably I'm going to appeal to this. Could you be a little bit more compassionate and maybe in this case cut me some slack even though, yes, I know I did wrong. So that's, it, it, it is a matter of perspective to some degree. Okay, we have several hands. Yeah. Well, I think too it also comes up based, people are going to look at it based on what they did. Because the same situation came up with one of the Manson girls for, that was involved with Charles Manson. Oh, way back in the seventies. Yes. And she wanted to be released from prison too to be with her family. Right. People were like, "No, look what you did." So I think sometimes too people will gauge it based on the situation. That's a very good point. When they'll have compassion. Yes. And when they'll have that. It's a difficult one. That's why I put them both up there because it really does it really does go after kind of the human side of it at the same time that you have to deal with the right and wrong side of it as well, the justice side of it, okay? And, it, and that's kind of how it, that's how it kind of works. Because when you think of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, that kind of, le- that kind of takes us over here to the truth. I love His truth. I love His Word. I'm not going to downgrade it. I'm not going to uh, water it down, and that's often the accusation that comes uh, when people who are over here are looking at people over here. When people who are, who are strong on the truth listen to the people who are the compassionate ones, they say, well, fine, you're expecting me to water down the truth. You're expecting me to go easy. You're expecting me to take what is God's truth and turn it into some sort of social construct. I'm not going to do that. By the same token, these people over here, the confession people are looking at, I mean, the co- compassion people are looking at the confession people saying, well, you're just a bunch of hypocritical, judgmental uh, people who have no care at all for anybody. You just care about what some, uh, some words from, from long ago say. So see, each side looks at the other side and says, you're the enemy. And the reality is, I think in the Christian community, we're actually called to see it in both ways. And this is a great example of how Jesus did that. We're going to talk a little bit further about that. Yeah, Max, and then I'll move over. I'm going to make it really easy for you to uh, give her that answer. And that is, uh, he wiped out his rabbi's pension fund. His rabbi was broke after what Madoff did to him. So he even stole from his spiritual... You're talking about Madoff? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so why does that make... Oh, easy. Yeah, boy. Okay, see, so that would be a good example because then you're remembering the hardship he caused and the betrayal is the biggest, biggest part of that. So see, the deeper the hurt goes, the easier it is to go this direction, the confession rather than the compassion. Okay, let me go over here and then I'll come back over. So Carl. 
Yeah, there's a, a real fine line between this uh, compassion and condolence. Uh, Jesus had compassion on this woman, but he didn't condone what she has done. She said, now go, he said, you're forgiven, but now don't sin anymore. Yeah. So we're seeing that I have a, a, a cousin that's a, a Methodist minister. Uh-huh. Out of Austin, and he got it years ago. He got involved with the, the gay community and became a gay church. Okay, in Austin. And mm -hmm. At the time he started marrying the gay people, uh -huh. my brother and I wrote back to him and said, "You've crossed the line between compassion and, and condoning." And condoning, yeah, yeah, uh, scripturally. Yeah, because it would negate the truth side. Then, I mean, sometimes and we related to this. Very, oh, you use this story, is that? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, God, Jesus said, yeah, your, your sin's forgiven, but stop sinning. Yeah. Sin no more. Yeah. It's a, little, it's a little more complex when you're having a discussion with, with the LGBT community because in that setting, the argument often is given that we're not talking about sin here. We're talking about living your life out the way God created you to be, which is different from this situation, correct? Now, if we were talking about the sin of abortion, for example, or something like that, it'd be a little bit easier to, to apply this to that. But it's still, in my mind, is still the, the relevance of this is how do we as Christians, how do we respond when someone we know Okay, and we all do, we all of, all of us do, know somebody engaged in something that the truth says is sin. And yet, uh, how do I respond to that person recognizing the fact that I also am a sinner? So it's not like I can just look at your sin and say, well, look how terrible you are. That's so bad, bad, bad. And then I'm not turning the mirror like we talked last time about the mirror that we have in front of our face that I turn it back on myself. If I refuse to turn it on myself, then I turn into one of these guys here that's seeking to stone this lady for doing what she did, and clearly what she did was sin. Yeah. I heard it said that, you know, it's one thing for those of us who weren't the victims of the crime to offer compassion. It's kind of like, you know, politicians who'd like to give our money. Yeah, sure. Right. And like when they're doing, um, Sentencing, they listen to the victim yeah. who has more of a right, you know, right. Say, to offer. Right. You know, like the Amber Geiger case. Mm -hmm. know, when her, when his brother, Hunter, that just yeah. was such a. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes this happens is that when the person who's been victimized will forgive the person who did the offense. And that, that's a public, there's a public display of that or expression of that forgiveness. And, and then what's interesting, that was a good example of how other people who have some sort of agenda or who have some sort of feelings about it, not maybe just agenda, but feelings, react differently to it. And sometimes the people that know somebody are very angry and offended that how dare you forgive, Okay. So we have, to, we have to put forgiveness in here because forgiveness is the way that God treats us in terms of both a confession as well as compassion. 
God describes himself as a compassionate God. He sent Jesus to be our Savior, and Jesus knows what it's like to be human. The Bible talks about that he lived the life that we live. The only difference is he did it without sin. So the fact that forgiveness is part of the, and it's really a key aspect to this, the question becomes, well, what does forgiveness mean? And what did it mean in the case of this, uh, this particular individual? So if we could go to the back page, and I, I kind of wrote down some things here in terms of at, the, at that last part there where he says, go and from now on uh, sin no more. So it is kind of an interesting, when you look at the pattern of the story, that there's the definite pattern of law and gospel that's present in the way that Jesus approached the situation. Because when you look at the situation, it wasn't just the woman who was the sinner. It was also who? It was also the man, and then who else was it? Everybody that was bringing the... Bringing the so, so everybody except Jesus is involved here is, uh, is, a, is, is, is a sinner, all right? So in the way the story works is they bring this lady to Jesus and they, and they say, okay, we're going to test you. What are you going to do? And then Jesus, the first thing he says to them is what? Let him who is without sin do what? Throw the first stone. So is that law or gospel? It's law. It's law. There's no good news in what he just said. There's no relief in what he said, Right? If, if you think that you uh, deserve to be more perfect than, than her or anybody else, then you get to be the one to first cast the first stone. Yeah, Philip. Well, the thing that jumps off the page for me is the one who would be justified in casting the first stone doesn't. He shows mercy. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. 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 He, put, he, put, he puts that mirror in front of everyone in the crowd, including himself. That's correct. He's the only one that it would be in this situation be justified to cast that stone. Yes. Um, no, but I don't think anybody else in the crowd believes that. That's right. But he chooses not to. Yeah. So he, by his not condemning in the sense of throwing the first stone, actually is giving a witness to her. Very good point. I hadn't even thought about that. All right. Great, great point. All right. All right. So then he gets down on the ground and he's writing this record against someone, uh, whoever's there. Is that law or gospel? That's law. Yeah, right? He, he, what, because see, how you know it's law is that the effect of the law is, is that it, it triggers guilt. See, the gospel does not trigger guilt. The gospel is good news. The tra- the, what the gospel does is it triggers relief from guilt. But in this case, they needed to know guilt before they could know forgiveness. They needed to know the law before they could know the gospel. Not, not intellectually know. Yeah, they knew it intellectually, but I'm talking about experience it in that moment. Because up to that moment, they felt totally justified in the rightness of what they were doing. Even though in the rightness of what they were doing, it totally was absent any kind of compassion, any kind of mercy, even any kind of thought that maybe she could be forgiven. And maybe they thought that that look at her life and look at the repetitive actions that she's committing in her life. Clearly, it's against God's word. We can point chapter and verse. There it is right there. And because of that, 
she's, if, if anybody here deserves to be stoned to death, she's the one. All right, so then he's writing down and he's writing and we don't know what he's writing. But then what starts to happen is they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Now, what does that suggest is the feeling that they are experiencing in that moment? Guilt. That's what it suggests. Again, doesn't say it, it just suggests that, all right? And so they all start going away until nobody's there at, except Jesus and the uh, woman. And then there's this little moment where he, he says, where are they? Where did everybody go? Is no one left to condemn you? And then she says, well, nobody did. And sa- then he says, neither do I. Is that law or gospel? Gospel. And then he says, go and sin no more. Is that law or gospel? That's law. See? So it's, a, it's really a wonderful little pattern there in terms of that. Now notice where in the placement of the story does he, or the moment that he encounters her, where in that moment does he talk about her sin? At the end. What does he talk about before he talks about her sin? Well, their sin, yeah, but I'm talking about with respect to her. What comes before that? Neither do I condemn you. He gives her the gospel before he talks to her about how she's now going to live her life. I think the takeaway, I think, well, let's, we can test it. What if we spent more energy talking to the person and connecting with the person in mercy and compassion, and then we can talk about the sin? Not that we ignore the sin. We're not going to ignore the sin. We're not going to condone the sin. But sometimes I think what happens in our, earnest, in, our, in our effort, our desire to protect the gospel, to fight for Jesus, you know, whatever terminology you want to use, is that the first thing that comes out of our lips is to talk about the sin. And then talking about the gospel and forgiveness and all that kind of thing and relationship, that's kind of an afterthought if we ever even get to it. What do you think? What do you think? It kind of goes to how he does this. Because the other part that I suspect, and the story doesn't tell it, I I suspect, when he said, go and sin no more, well, she's still a widow. She still doesn't have any means of financial support, we assume. She still is kind of at the mercy of the society for which there was no social safety net. That still is a reality for her. So how is she going to live if she's supposed to live within the constraint that Jesus now puts on her, which says, go and sin no more? What's she going to do? What's she going to do? I'm sorry, I'm talking so much. But crisis pregnancy centers come to my mind because they do it right. Condemnation is not the first... Response. You're saying with, with, uh, with uh, uh, women who might be considering abortion as an example. Yeah, crisis, yeah. And they don't, you know, the gospel's presented, but also practical help is given. Yeah. The idea that, that they only love the fetus until it's born right. is just not true. Because right. Because 
for months and years mm -hmm. afterwards. They're yeah. still, you know, the supplies you need or the decisions you need to help make. So, so you see what the premise is, is that it's pretty lame to go to somebody and say, you know, you are leading a sinful life and you just need to stop. You just sin no more. See ya. And to not offer any support or any kind of way of uh, acknowledging the realities of that person's life and then to have some sort of way to surround that person with, with love and compassion but also maybe some practical stuff too, support in some way. What, what I suspect happened when Jesus said, go and sin no more, is he welcomed her into his fellowship. Instead of that, he did not shun her. Because again, the reality would have been that, well, how is she going to support herself? Well, she needs to have her own family. Well, she didn't have her own family. So Jesus and the disciples became her family. And there's some suggestion of that in the stories in the New Testament, particularly with uh, some of the connections or some of the relationships of, of significant women who became part of this. Uh, we're not, the, this woman's not named, but some people think she was Mary Magdalene, that she was the one who eventually became very close to the disciples. That's very, that's very possible. But, we, but, I w but it would strongly suggest that Jesus saw the, the, the reality of the woman's life and said, come be a part of that. Come be a part of us. And we will support you in the change that you're going to make in this new aspect of your life. What would have been more difficult if she had said, no, thank you. And we, don't know, we don't know which way it would have gone here. But, but it would suggest that it went the way of that positive way. Okay? Yeah. I was just going to say, he offered her a way out. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you're in that situation... You don't see anything That's except right. the way that you're making That's right. your way in the world. That's right. And he offered her a release from that, mm -hmm. so perhaps it opened her eyes yeah. to other things that she could mm -hmm. do. Well, and the other part of it is, and I think in the Christian community, we, we, we need to sort of step up, is that very often in the communities where certain social sin is, accept, is condoned, they have a strong support network for that. So for women that maybe someone's considering abortion, and then let's say that she goes ahead and gets an abortion, there's a strong lobby for that person. There's a strong network of people who support that person in her decision to do that. And I think sometimes we in the Christian community fall short of that. We're relieved they didn't do the sin. Or we're upset that they did do the sin. And then we kind of shun the person. As if somehow what they did is catching. And we, we ought not to, to engage ourselves with that person. Jesus, Jesus never had that problem. Because he always looked at it from the compassionate point of view. But he did not use compassion as an excuse to negate the truth. And he recognized that the scribes and the Pharisees, because they had become such legalists in terms of the truth, that they had also corrupted the truth and turned it into something that was all about the rules, and they lost sight of, 
justice and mercy and compassion and all those kinds of things too. We looked at that last week. You know, Jesus said, you know, do this, pay attention to this, but while you're doing it, don't neglect this. And that's a hard one for us to do. Yeah, Christina? I was going to say, I feel like... You'll have to speak up because even I can't hear today often will, um, in the way in which we're moving, first of all, the lack of person-to-person communication yeah. and what we can say when we don't have to watch the response of the other person when yeah. we say it uh-huh. is lacking big time. Yes. And I think, too, we're so quick to put someone in a box Yep. And then label the box. Yep. And then never let them out of the box. Right. Um, and so, like, you know, the saying is, you're like, your life is this long and you only really know about this much of my life. Mm-hmm. So be sure to, like, having that, being sure to have that open mind. I feel like that's where we've really lost yeah. um, our way, sort of. Mm-hmm. Like, and I feel like it definitely touches on the more right. compassionate side. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of kind of what you have there is... is Almost the worry about yourself when it comes to the sin side, mm-hmm. and then just love others. Well, it's kind of like if I can, if when I turn the mirror on myself and I see my own sin, if if what is not in there is the fact that I'm grateful for being forgiven for my sin, then the instinct will be that I cannot bear to look at my sin very long. We can't bear it. We. If all, there is is, if all there is to look at is my sin, you're not going to be able to look at it very long. Nobody can. Because you can't bear that. But then God comes along and says, well, while you're looking at your sin, you'll see me. Because that's what I see when I see your sin. I see Jesus. And in Jesus, we have forgiveness. So can I look at my sinfulness through the lens of my forgiveness? Yes, I can. And then when I do that, then maybe I can actually learn from my sin. Maybe I can actually work at not doing my sin. Am I going to slip up? Yes. Am I going to fall flat? Yes. But the fact that I already am forgiven is what empowers me to keep going in spite of the fact that I fall short and I fall flat on my face. And I think that that's a message that we in the Christian community then can, can also include in the, in the equation. And again, I think sometimes we, we get adamant about and, and quite defensive about the way that we're being portrayed. In other words, that if I speak truth about what the Bible says about, you know, lifestyles or whatever thing you want to choose, the immediate uh, reaction from society is, is that I'm guilty of hate. Now, that doesn't make it true, right? It just, but that's the, that's the box now that people who speak God's truth are put in as well. And once you're in there, if you're a Christian, it's hard to get out of there. It, but it's also hard to not be reactive to those that would put us there. So I would argue that even being unfairly put into a box and, and labeled as someone who hates... Can we forgive that? And can we act with compassion toward those that would even do that? Yes, we can. Hard to do. Because when you're being falsely accused of something or when you're being uh, run down in in such a way or even just lied about, it's very difficult to respond 
in a non-reactive way and to respond the way Jesus did. Yeah. I was raised in a Pentecostal church and I can identify real well with the compassion, mm -hmm. compassionate Christians yeah. and the I'm better than you yeah. Christians. It's easy to and go I, there. Mm -hmm. If you slip up even a little in yeah. the Pentecostal church, there are so many mm -hmm. sins you couldn't believe it. I mean, it, yeah. very little... <laughs> But Not a lot of leeway in there. Everybody wants to lead you to the altar for for, for you to confess your sin. Mm -hmm. But when the doors look open and you go out to church, <coughs> no one goes with you. So, you know, it's, and so it, that's it's the struggle, isn't thing. it? It is. It is. Yeah. It's, it makes yeah. it tough. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. That's the thing that I like now, though, being in in an environment where people aren't constantly judging you. Yeah. Because I grew up in a church where it was a small church in a small town, mm -hmm. and there was a small congregation. Mm -hmm. But it was like, boy, if, if it got caught saying golly, <coughs> you're going to hell. Well, see, that's one of the nice things about being in such a large church. <laughs> is that you can sin all you want and nobody notices it. And then if you're not wearing your name tag, they don't even know if you're a member or not. So it's, it's like the perfect deal, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, one more comment and then we got to go. So two observations. First one is I think it's very interesting and perhaps telling that Jesus didn't ask for ver uh, verification that either party had sinned. Yeah. He didn't even ask them whether they had or not. He just right. speaks to it. Uh, the, the other observation that as a parent, I think perhaps all of us feel this way, we love our children very much. That does not mean that we approve of their behavior. Yeah. So, you know, you, you tell them the truth, yeah. but yet you have compassion yeah. for them. Because you realize they're going through the same things that we do. Sure. And that's the beauty of it is that we don't forget that we've been down that road too. Okay? All right, very good. Well, let's close with prayer, and uh, uh, then we'll get ready for the next thing. Father in heaven, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the way that your word challenges us to think about the relationship of compassion to confession. Uh, both of those are important, Lord. They both matter, and we see them both at work in your life and ministry. And yet at times it feels like we're having to choose between the two. And maybe it's true, Lord, that there are times when we actually do. So, we, Lord, the, the joy for us is that when we, when we err to too much confession and uh, too much um, uh, compassion, and then we kind of end up uh, maybe negating the truth, what the joy for us is that we're forgiven for that. And by the same token, in those moments when we get a little bit too uppity, a little bit too judgmental in, in the fact that we have the truth, then we forget to be compassionate with each other that we're forgiven for that too. So Lord, help us and, and empower us to know when, uh, when, when each of those is needed and, and in what order. But always help us to know that no matter what we do, when we mess up, your love for us does not change and the forgiveness you have for us in your son Jesus is the ultimate gift. So uh, enable us, Lord, give us opportunity to put this to work in the coming days of this week until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. 
Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone, or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.